You can take your Bibles, open them to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Next week, Lord willing, Pastor Miller will be beginning a series on Philippians. But in the interval, I'm very thankful for the two weeks I've been given to open the word with you. And as I mentioned uh, last week, though the sermon last week and the sermon this week are not a church planting series by any means, I do think there are clear implications from both texts uh, for those of us who are being sent out as a church plant to Richfield and for those of us who remain at Eden as our sending church. Last week, we looked at Psalm 2, reflected on the idea that all nations belong to Jesus, God's Son. And in that, we saw much of the rationale for church planting. I mean, after all, what gives anyone the right, whether in Minneapolis or Central Asia, to go into any place and to tell people there, you need to turn from your sin and submit to the Son of God and trust in Him. It's because Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. The nations ultimately belong to Him. And though Jesus will bring justice on all who persist in their rebellion against Him, what Jesus longs for what the Father longs for, what the psalmist calls out for, is for people from every place and every nation to run to the Son and find refuge. That provides the rationale, we could say, for church planting. For this week, if I wanted to express how this sermon relates to church planting, I would say that today's focus is on the means of church planting. In other words, if somebody asked me, How are you going to plant this church? What do you have to offer people? How are you going to grow this thing? Phil Trock and I have joked about this a few times because the truth is, in many ways, we don't really have a whole lot. I mean, Phil and I aren't all that funny, and we don't have a lot of Twitter followers. But but the one thing we have, and it's not a secret, I hope, is we, we have... The gospel. Now, I understand that for church planting, there are many, many books written about church planting on best methods, approaches, strategies, and I've read and profited from several, so I'm not trying to put those down or communicate that we're not strategizing as a, as a church plant. But at the end of the day, we don't really have some special angle, some innovative approach, some secret sauce that's going to make sure this church takes off and and grows. What makes the kind of church that honors Christ or what grows that kind of church is the gospel. That's the means of church planting. And so to put simply what I want to do today, I want to just set before you the gospel. Now you might ask why I would do that. You know, we know that. We know we know the gospel, most of us. And that, so I just wanted to share a couple goals I have up front of what I hope our journey through some of this text in Galatians will, will accomplish. First, this church, Eden, church, Eden Baptist Church, is, is the sending church. And so I, I count it a privilege to be able to set before you the gospel that we hope to proclaim in Richfield. 
It's interesting, you could read sometime in Galatians 2, about how Paul, this is before he went out on his first missionary journey, when he was up in Jerusalem, he says that he set before them the gospel that he was preaching among the Gentiles. And he said that he did that to make sure he wasn't running or had not run in vain. And in response to that, Paul says that they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And I think that today, one of the goals is to be able to set before you our sending church the gospel that we hope to proclaim. A second goal would be for all of us who are here who believe the gospel. I want us to remember it. To remember the message, the one message that defines this church and that unites this church. As a church, we don't get to make the gospel whatever we want it to be. The gospel is whatever God says it is. And it's his gospel that actually makes us who we are. The Christian gospel defines a church. It makes a church. It unites a church. So we need to know it inside and out. And I think today is a great opportunity, especially coming after these months in Leviticus where we saw many signs pointing ahead to the gospel and where Pastor Miller helped us make many connections to the gospel, it's good for us today to look directly at the New Testament and behold the glory of the gospel. And then third, if you're here today and you don't know what the gospel is, or maybe you know what it is, but you don't believe it yet, I want to thank you for being here. And I want you to see the gospel today. I want you to hear it. I want you to understand it. And I want to call you to believe it. Now, look at Galatians. A little context. We're looking at what is likely the second New Testament document that we have. First being James. This would be the first letter that Paul wrote that became part of the Christian scriptures. If you're familiar with his life, he was in Galatia in Acts 13 and 14, planting these churches, a lot of suffering. And within a year, he gets a report that those churches that he risked his life to start are already, some of them, some of those people are deserting the very gospel that he risked his life to bring them. That's why when you read Galatians 1, verse 6, you can look at it, Paul says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, much could be said about that text. That's not going to be our focus today. But I think you could at least draw out from that text that for Paul, there is clearly only one true gospel. He's so emphatic about that point that he pronounces a curse 
on all who would present a gospel contrary to the one that he preached to these people. There's only one message that can be called the Christian gospel. And second, you could draw from that text that there is a serious and real danger of drifting from the gospel. Paul never took it for granted that the churches that embraced the gospel would continue to stand firm in the gospel. That's why he writes to them so often, challenging them. And we might think, there's no way we'll ever drift from the gospel, but I doubt the Galatian churches ever thought that. I don't think they thought when Paul left that many people from within their own assembly would be tempted so strongly and some of them would succumb to the temptation to change or distort or follow a different gospel. They didn't think that that was going to happen. I'm confident of that, but the temptation is real. And so in line with Paul, I want to call us all today back to the gospel, the gospel that defines us. And to do this, we're going to look at the text that preceded that text we just read. We're going to look at the opening verses of Paul's first letter that's in our Christian scriptures. Paul, an apostle, Galatians 1.1, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the greeting of Paul's very first scriptural letter, and it's loaded with core Christian doctrine. From the very beginning of the New Testament, there are certain truths that define Christianity, define the Christian gospel. And one of the things I want to show us today by looking at this text is how even the wording in this text about the core elements of the Christian gospel is the same wording or is so close to the wording you find throughout the entire New Testament when you look at the early church preaching the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 1. In the first verse, it's clear Paul defends his call as an apostle. We're not going to develop all the reasons that he does that. You read Galatians 1 and 2, though. It's obvious that that's a big thing for Paul to defend who called him and who gave him the message. Paul was called directly by Jesus. And you look down at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. He'll say, and I got my message from Jesus. Verse 11, I'd have you know, brothers, the gospel preached by me isn't man's gospel. I didn't get it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The big idea, Paul says, I'm Jesus' representative, speaking the message Jesus gave me with authority he granted me. Paul, an apostle. But look at how he says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. I want to focus not so much on what Paul says about himself in that text, but for our purposes today, I want you to think about what Paul just said about Jesus in the very first letter that he wrote that's in our Bibles. Do you see how closely Paul links Jesus with God the Father? Through Jesus and God the Father. His apostleship comes through Jesus and the Father. They are the sources together of Paul's call. You can also see in verse 3, Grace and peace comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Second, do you notice how Paul doesn't just say Jesus, he says Jesus Christ. 
Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, if you remember last week's message in Psalm 2. But also look at what Paul says immediately after the dash, if you have an ESV text. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus. What do you think of that? Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus. What's so interesting is Paul distinguishes Jesus from other human beings in that text. Do you see that? Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus. Now, is Paul saying Jesus isn't a human being? Let me be clear. Paul was not saying that Jesus is not a human. You could look at other texts. You know where Paul says there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. It's not his point to say Jesus isn't a man. Jesus is a man. But Paul, even in the first letter, in the very opening verse, recognizes Jesus is not just a mere human being. I didn't get my call from a man. I got it from Jesus. Within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul's already emphasizing this. Jesus is God's Messiah, resurrected from the dead. He's no mere human being. We see later in verse 3, Paul will also call him the Lord Jesus. It's the Lord who gave Paul his calling, and it's the Lord who gave Paul his message. Now, look back at verse 1 one more time. Look at the last part of it. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. I want us to think about that phrase, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, we could begin by noting that any time the New Testament talks about the resurrection of Jesus, it clearly assumes what? That he died. Okay? That will actually be Paul's focus in this passage we're in and throughout the whole book. You read the book of Galatians, you won't find one other clear reference to the resurrection than this one right here. In other places in the New Testament, there'll be more emphasis on the resurrection than on the death of Jesus. But they always go together. Both are absolutely essential to the Christian gospel. Without the proclamation that Jesus died for our sins, you don't have a Christian gospel. But without the proclamation that God raised Jesus from the dead you don't have the Christian gospel. One text in the New Testament may emphasize one more than another, but both are essential to the Christian gospel. Sometimes we have to be careful because we can emphasize only one, often the death of Jesus, and tell someone, say we tell them the gospel, but never really tell them that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's not the Christian gospel to just say that Jesus died for our sins. Now, Jesus died for our sins and God raised him from the dead. But I want to look at the wording even. Notice Paul doesn't say Jesus rose from the dead, but rather God raised Jesus from the dead. That is the normal way the New Testament talks about the resurrection of Jesus. So what I mean is that when the New Testament writers or preachers shared the gospel or expressed the gospel to people, 
what they said about the resurrection, they described it as something God the Father did to Jesus. God raised him from the dead. Now, it's not to say that you can't find any text where it says that Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus had the authority to rise from the dead. Jesus says that kind of thing in, for example, John 10 and 11. I have the authority to lay my life down and I have the authority to take it back again. But even in text in John that say that, there's often other things around it that say things like, I received this charge from my father, or the father has granted the son to have life in himself. What is much more the focus throughout the entirety of the New Testament is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Just We're going to listen to some text, and I want you to turn to some text to see this, because it's all over the New Testament. Listen to the Jesus talking about his death and resurrection. Just listen to what he says in Matthew. Three times he predicts that he's going to die. Matthew 16, he says, From this time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The next chapter in Matthew 17 says the Son of Man is going to be delivered and they're going to kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Or Matthew 20 says we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Now, I want you to see it in the Gospel of Acts. This is the preaching of the Gospel in the early church. Look through the book of Acts. We're going to look at a few of the sermons in the book of Acts, just in the first couple of chapters, to see this is how the New Testament writers and early preachers talked about the resurrection. Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, you can look at verse 22. Men of Israel, Acts 2.22, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. 2.23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by it. Or if you look down later in the same sermon, verse 30, being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of this we are all witnesses. Or you could go to the next chapter in Acts, chapter 3. Acts 3, verse 14. Peter says, 3.14, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. Or Acts 4, verse 10. Acts 4.10, Let it be known. Acts 4.10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man who's been healed is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone in their salvation and no one else because no other name has been given under heaven by which we must be saved. Or look at Acts 5. Acts 
Acts 5, verse 30. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is the way the early church preached the gospel of Jesus. Jesus died and God raised him from the dead. And there are texts that we know by heart, probably many of us, that say this things like Romans 10:9 if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is lord and believe in your heart what that God raised him from the dead you will be saved or 1 Corinthians 15 the gospel Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and he was raised on the third day. I don't want to overemphasize the point, but I'll say this. That is the norm in the early church to confess that God, the father raised Jesus from the dead. And sometimes it says that God did that through the Holy spirit. The significance of that among other things is that God, the father accepted Jesus sacrifice. And we know that because God raised him back from the dead and God raising Jesus from the dead is God's vindication of Jesus. It's the ultimate proof that Jesus is who he claimed he is. That Jesus could do what he claimed he could do. The ultimate proof of it is that God raised him from the dead. If God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, Jesus was a fake, which is what most of the, of the Jewish leaders thought. Christianity is a sham, but God did, in fact, raise Jesus from the dead And when we think of that, that is God's testimony to us. It is God's affirmation of Jesus to us. That Jesus is Christ. That Jesus is Lord. Though Jesus was rejected by his people, by the Jewish leaders, killed by the Romans, they were wrong about Jesus. And the resurrection is God saying Jesus was right. Now go back to Galatians. I want to look back. We're going to focus on verses 3 through 5 the rest of our time. This is what Paul focuses on. The death of our Lord Jesus. Galatians 1, 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Paul wishes grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus as he often does. Those are profound truths in themselves, but I want to focus on verse 4. How Paul describes the death of our Lord. Verse 4, the Lord Jesus who gave himself for our sins. Jesus, from in the early preaching, early writing, they already knew, Jesus gave himself up. He didn't die unwillingly. He gave himself up. See that in another Pauline text? There's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom 
Paul says later in Galatians, Christ loved me and he gave himself up for me. Jesus says this often in John 10. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Say it more than once. Then he'll say things like, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. When we come together to worship, we come to remember the voluntary death of Jesus. He was crucified. He was killed by sinful people. We could even say he was murdered. But Jesus did not have to die. He went to the cross willingly. That is the foundation in the New Testament for the call to love. It's not just that Jesus died. It's that he died willingly, leaving us an example to follow. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Church members ought to willingly lay down their rights for the good of others because Jesus didn't seek to please himself but gladly took the reproaches that belonged to us. He took them on himself. Christian love is grounded throughout the New Testament in the love that Jesus showed us when he willingly laid his life down for us. Look at Galatians 1.4 again. How, I'm looking very closely just how Paul describes the death of Jesus. This is not complicated stuff, but it is deep and it's good. Jesus gave himself, next phrase, for our sins. From the earliest times in the church, it was clear to them that Jesus' death was for somebody else's sins. How did they know that? That he was hanging there for somebody else's sins. It's all over the place. Now, we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months looking at a lot of language about sacrifices for sins all over Leviticus, right? The priests were always offering sacrifices for sins. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time on that and how those animals, death, their blood couldn't take away sins. But another thing the author of Hebrews often emphasizes is that those priests who offered their sacrifices for the people had to do what first? They first had to offer sacrifices and they'll say, for their own sins. And then for the sins of the people. But listen to just one verse of what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus in that. Jesus has no need, in Hebrews 7, like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' death was not for his own sins because he had none. His death was for our sins. The righteous died for the unrighteous, in the words of Peter. Or in the words of Paul, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us 
the clearest example of how foundational that is to the New Testament preaching is in that text in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, this is the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And we saw it all over Isaiah 52, 13 to the end of chapter 53. But in Galatians, the most beautiful passage in my view about this is Galatians 3. In the middle, in Galatians 3, 10, Paul pronounces what the law pronounced, saying, Cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything written in the book of the law. And then a few verses later, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Jesus died willingly as a substitute for our sins. By his wounds, we have been healed. As Jesus himself said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. Where would we be if Jesus didn't take our place? We wouldn't be here. What hope would you have if Jesus didn't die for your sins. Now quickly, I just want to move on in the text in Galatians 1, 4. We won't have time to focus on this last phrase of verse 4. Or this middle phrase, I guess. Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Can't develop this. This is a major idea in Galatians, that Jesus died to rescue us from this age. But I'll give you a couple ideas that you could think about and then you could read and study the book on your own. When Paul talks about this age or this evil age, he's talking about an age that's bad, against God, against Christ, against the cross. Perhaps you remember texts throughout Paul's writings like, don't be conformed to this age. Or the God of this age, namely Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus. This age is bad in Paul, oppressive, and we all used to belong to it. If you read Paul's writings. So when Paul says that Jesus died to rescue us from the present evil age, he's emphasizing that Jesus died not just to save us from our sins, but to transform our entire existence. How we look at everything, how we identify ourselves, how we think of what's valuable and what's important is not shaped and defined by this age and the people of this age. This book begins here and this book ends here. Jesus died to rescue us from the present evil age in 1-4. And then if you look at the most, one of the most well-known texts in Galatians 6-14, which we sung about this song right before I came up here, the second half of the verse that we don't know that well, 
It's right there in the closing. May it never be that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world, and the world and the age are basically the same in Paul, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, big themes in Galatians, they don't matter. What matters is a new creation which the cross brings about. The world has been crucified to believers and believers to the world. We don't belong to this age. That's all over Paul's writings. For Paul, the death of Jesus fundamentally transforms who we are and what we belong to. Jesus' death and resurrection makes it so we're no longer slaves to this age or this world. We belong to the age to come. That's where we have our citizenship. These ideas are all over Galatians. You could read it this week and you'd see how Paul says, before Christ, you're under sin. You're enslaved under the basic powers of the world. You're under the law. You're under a curse. You're in the flesh. You're enslaved to idols. And if you had Paul's other writings, we're under the dominion of Satan and under the reign of death. Do you believe that? That that's who you used to be? Do you really believe you were that bad off? When you look at your neighbor who's kind and caring and unbelieving, do you think they're that bad off? In such desperate need of freedom from bondage? All of Paul's language of freedom in Galatians is revolving around this. We were slaves to this age. But it's for freedom. Christ has set us free. And you could read Galatians and see how Paul flushes that out. But I want to come back to verse 4. and Look at the last phrase. Jesus gave himself for our sins, 1-4, to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. All that Jesus came to do in his life and especially in his death was according to the will of his God and Father. Jesus died willingly. The text already says that. But he died in submission to his Father's will. As with many of the other ideas, this is throughout the New Testament. It's on the lips of Jesus and it's on the lips of the early preachers. Think of Jesus. His disciples have gone away to get some food because they're hungry. He's been talking with a woman, Samaritan woman, an outcast at this well, telling her about himself. They come back. Jesus says, all right, got food. They're like, what? How did you get food? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Peter preaches this in Acts. Let's not forget Jesus in the garden. Prostrate in the garden. Do you see him there? Weighing. Actually, the suffering is weighing upon him. 
calls out to his father, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And what does he keep saying? Nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. Jesus' death was a travesty. Worst thing that ever happened in human history. No accident. It was His Father's will. We read that text. Scott read that text earlier today. That idea went back hundreds of years before Jesus. All that text in Isaiah 52 and 53 about substitutionary death of the Lord's servant. And do you remember what he read? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. To put him to grief. Why would God do that to his son. It's because the Father loved us. He loved you. God loved us in this way that he sent his only son to death so that whoever believes in him would never perish but would have eternal life. This is love. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Yet, as Isaiah prophesied, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him, but it was just as much the will of the Lord to prolong His days the will of the Lord would prosper in the hand of the one who had been killed. The Father crushed the Son for us and the Father raised the Son victorious from the dead and exalted Him to His right hand as Lord and Savior and Judge. This is the Gospel that we must believe. This is the Gospel we need to remember This is the gospel we need to proclaim. This is what I would set before you as the gospel of God that has been proclaimed, prophesied, and promised in the Old Testament scriptures and come to fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth and preached this way from the very beginning of the New Testament. And this, by God's grace, is what has defined our church. And this is what has to unite us. Nothing else can unite us like this. And by God's grace, this is what will make Richfield Bible Church what it will be. But as we close today, what should we do with these things? If you are an unbeliever, In other words, if you're not trusting completely in Jesus and in this message about 
Jesus for your standing with God, for the forgiveness of your sins, I call you to stop trusting in yourself or in some other God or in some other gospel and to believe wholly on the Lord Jesus, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you'll go home saved, justified. If you're trusting in the gospel already, I want to challenge you to study the gospel more to plunge its depths further in Scripture. And as you do, let the gospel stir you once again to love Christ and to love the church for which Christ died, to forgive others in this church as Christ has forgiven you to lay down your life and the rights you've been holding on to to hurt someone else, to hold something against them, to lay it down as Christ laid down his rights and his life for you. But at the end of it all, what is the most appropriate response to the glories of the gospel? Look back to the text one more time. Galatians 1.4 Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. What can we say but this? To him be the glory forever and ever. God has worked in such a specific way so that all glory, honor, praise goes to him who's seated on the throne and to his son forever and ever. Where's boasting? Where's our pride when we consider the gospel? Where is it? It's laid in the dust. The gospel of the promised Christ crucified for our sins, whom God raised from the dead for our justification, is what frees us. It's what defines us. It's what must unite us. And it always, always should inspire us to worship. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.